So I got a sense of deja vu while I was preparing this sermon. Um, I was just going through it on Monday. However, I already had my outline and everything, and um, this feels vaguely familiar. I'm not sure where I've heard the sermon before, but it sounds really familiar. I know some of this stuff we've gone through in, in Wednesday night classes um, that we're doing here, and so some of the content, I'm like, well, maybe that's it. And I thought, well, this is really feeling eerie, eerie, like I've just preached this. So I'm start skimming. Sure enough, I'd preached uh, a, a version of it uh, uh, the second week of the year. So I'm like, well, we're going to have to rearrange here. Uh, but fortunately, uh, most of what we're going to focus on isn't that sermon. Um, I was going to use that sermon, I guess, as an as a intro to this. Uh, so we're going to kind of just skim over uh, some of what we're doing. We were talking about at the beginning of the year, we were talking about um, optimism and, and, and things like that. And we're going to end up going back to the, the discussion of these spies a little bit. And I guess my mind was running in that circle. So uh, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But Numbers 13 was this, this story of, of these spies being sent out, uh, how they uh, looked at their obstacles and, and everything and, and what they viewed and how they viewed it. And, and they came back and this was their report. And so we're going to return back to that scene. I don't know if you've ever had an encounter where you wish you knew how it turned out, but you simply don't know how it turned out. Uh, probably all of us have had something like that. You encountered somebody, you met somebody, uh, and, and you're like, I wonder whatever happened to that person. And, and you know, it was before the internet or whatever. It's just, that's, that's long, long time ago and just wish you, you knew. I, I had an occasion like that. Uh, it was uh, probably been early 90s. So, and I, I remember I was traveling across country on a bus and, uh, and, and I just, it was, I was stopped in Chicago, had a layover. And, and so uh, I just happened, uh, I went around Chicago and then we're coming back and I was getting ready to get on the bus. And I see this kid walking up to a different bus, not mine. Uh, and he's got a Bible out. Now that's kind of odd. He's just kind of walking around with a Bible and he's getting in line for this bus over here. And I'm getting in line. It was like the unit kind of thing. And, and, and I'm like, I've got I'm, I'm literally getting in line. I, they're they're going to take off. So I didn't even have the time that Philip had. Uh, and, and so I think I told him to read the book of John. That's, that's what I knew. And, and I said, you just, just, just read that book. Cause he's like, where is he at? And he's like, I don't even know where to read in this thing. I was like, like start in the book of John. That would be a good place to And I got on, I have no idea how that turned out. I would love to know whatever happened to that kid. You know, I, I think I might've suggested a church or something that he go to in whatever town uh, when he got back. And, and that's all I had. I was like, do this and do that. And I got to get on the bus. I'm heading. Uh, and so uh, I don't know. I would love to know what happened to that kid. Uh, maybe nothing happened. Maybe he's like, oh, whatever. Weird, weird dude. Anyway, um, but we, we like to know how things turned out. And so we're going to kind of go back to these spies. How does this thing turned out? They're given their, they're given their, uh, their, their stories. Well, we kind of know how it turns out because we've got the Bible. Isn't it a good thing that, that God told us how it all turned out? Uh, there's more to the story than Numbers 13 because there is Numbers 14, the story of this sermon, as I say, I was, I was planning on doing a slightly different sermon, so, so I've kind of had to, to revamp and, and go a different direction, uh, but, but we're doing a series, the beginning of a series called Dead Men Tell Tales, and that's, that's kind of the idea that we're going to get in, into here, uh, going through Easter, uh, and I, actually, I, I need to talk about how this sermon develops, because it's not really original. Uh, this, this sermon develops 
through a conversation with my wife. So she's been into uh, some writing projects. Uh, and, and so um, some doing some younger children's material and, and doing some authoring. So I'm, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. And so we were talking about this particular event. She's wanted to write about Joshua and, and, and kind of how his story develops. And, and started, you know, just here are some questions about some things that go on with Joshua. And so she's elaborating on some of these, the storylines. Sometimes I was talking with, with, with Kim here recently and, and she said, you know, sometimes there are dots that don't need to be connected. Right? And uh, sometimes, though, the dots are there to be connected. Sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes you can connect things in, in ways they don't. But sometimes to connect the dots, all you have to do is ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Why? This is interesting. We could just read it and keep going. Or we can stop for just a moment and ask a question. Why did they do that? All right. So with that, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. And we're going to be reading verse 1 through 12. He says, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. Now, the, what, what's happened here is as the, what we were preaching on here a few weeks ago uh, has, has just occurred. They've, they've given their accounts of these giants in the land and all this stuff and uh, all the impossibilities of it all. So the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us out of this land to fall by the sword so that our wives and children should become the victims? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select the leader and return to Egypt. Now, I'd never read that thought before. They were getting ready to overthrow Moses here. So Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. And the, God, the, the Lord delights in us. He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people or the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has left them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said, let's stone them with stones. I don't know what else you would stone them with, but let's stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared to the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. So we're going to ask some why questions here. Why were they afraid? That's the first question. We don't, we don't have to invent a lot of things here. Why are they afraid? They're obviously afraid. Why? So let's review some events. The obvious thing is that there are giants. Now, really? Are there giants? So, uh, we do need to clarify some things, because if you do, Google's a dangerous thing. If you start typing uh, uh, fossils of giants, you'll come up with what amounts to hoaxes, right? Those are hoaxes. They're, they're fake, all right? Uh, 
we they do there are bones and stuff that are are larger but but we don't have you know 20 feet tall people back in history okay that that oh yeah that that's you know you got just as much chance of finding that as you find leprechauns so not there um so it's, it's, were they really giants? Maybe they were just really, you know, maybe like six foot tall. And, you know, if you're, you're five foot tall, that's a giant to you. Um, so uh, you can go, this, this is real. You can find a photograph of a guy by the name of Robert Wadlow. Anybody ever heard of Robert Wadlow? Robert Wadlow in 1940, he died in 1940. At the time of his death, he was eight foot 11. That's a giant by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so based on what we know, he's just a little bit shorter than Goliath. Okay, giants. It's a real thing. It's not a fairy tale. Okay. Uh, it's possible that there were a family of people that had these genetics. Okay, so, so, so we, we don't have to imagine that this is, okay, this is, the Bible's a little crazy here in this one section. We'll just kind of ignore it. No, it's a real thing. So we have a natural reason why they would be afraid. They'd be afraid of giants. No the part of this story that I think creates fear that is not given enough credit. And, and this is part of this passage in Numbers 13 talks about how they walked back with, they, they cut down a, a, a bunch of grapes. And, and it, just one thing of grapes that, that two people had to carry it between them on a pole. Now, I know grapes aren't that scary, okay? But I think I would start to feel a little scared at thinking, who eats these things? <laughs> like, like, what kind of person holds this in their hand? Like, I want a grape. You know? Just the whole idea of how small you would start to feel when you get holding a grape in your hand. That, to me, the grape itself not making me scary, but just the overall context of what God is potentially asking us to do seems overwhelming to me. This task, sometimes we, the task itself is not scary. God asks us to do some things, however, that we just start feeling, I'm not capable of this thing. I feel personally, it, it, I know some people could probably do this. I just, I personally feel a little bit small for this task. You ever feel that? And can you give it to that guy? He's good at doing this. They do that. God says, no, I want you to. And so I think the whole situation is scary. It's new. But why stone them? Here's another why. Okay. Let's review the situation and figure out why they had to stone them, because that doesn't make sense. It's just as I read it through it. Now, we come up to a thing that I think is an exaggeration. I don't think that among all these millions of people, however many people there were, that there were literally two people that were like, oh, let, let's go in. I think they were representative of the minority. Certainly, much like among the 12, there was two, right? I think that probably that's number statistically. There's this group of small group of people, but what happens when you're in the minority? What do you do? You shut up, right? So I think there was really no one opposing 
the large group, except for a couple of people who were like, no, let's go in. We've got this. We, God's already won this for us. But they were the majority. So the question is, if they're that much in the, the majority, what were they afraid of? You're the majority. Why do you have to kill two people? If you've got everybody on your side. Because they have this crowd stirred up. What is the motivation? When we ask why, there's, first of all, why has two different things? Why the motivation and why the goal? Why do this? What's the goal? Right? There's two different things. The why is what's motivating me and why is what I want to accomplish. And, and both of those whys need to be answered. What is the motivation? Well, obviously, they're afraid of being killed. We're out here. These people are huge. They live in fortified cities. We're grasshoppers in their sight. We're going to be killed because, you know, it's the guys that go to war. And our wives and our children are going to be left out here outside of the walls. And who knows what's going to happen to them? That's the why. That's what we're afraid of. Is that illogical? No, that's very logical. Those are things that I think about, right? Those are things that you take into account. You're going to go somewhere. You're going to do something. I've got this job. How is this going to affect my family? Right? We take these things into account. Let's be smart. I could be very vulnerable if I do this. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want my family to be vulnerable. This is not a wise decision. What's to be afraid of? I don't want to face these people. If we listen to Joshua and Caleb, then we have to go face these people. We don't wish to do that. So that's the motivation. But when we ask why kill these people, what I'm really getting at is what is the goal? What are they hoping to accomplish? What is it that killing Joshua and Caleb is going to do? Why is that? They've got the majority. The majority seems to be on their side, right? If there's 100 people and you've got 95 of them that don't want to do something, it seems pretty easy. It's not going to get done. You don't have to kill the five that want to do it. You just don't do it, right? So why kill these people? That's interesting to me. So I want to look at some of this. Um, I think what's happening here, is it's, it's connected to their insecurity. And I think that they think there's a chance that Joshua and Caleb might start convincing people. See, Joshua and Caleb have something that the majority doesn't have. So I want to look at some fatal flaws of, of their positions. I want to look at the irrationality of fear, first of all. The, irrational, the irrationality, how can an entire nation of people be afraid of two dudes? I mean, there's two of them. Well, it has to do with this. Truth intimidates people. It doesn't make a difference how many people are speaking it. You've got to silence all 
the sources of it. If there's only one source that's speaking truth and you don't got the truth, that's the source you need to silence. Truth intimidates. And there's something about truth. You know it when you have it and you know it when you don't. Maybe not. There are p- people who are sincere in their incorrectness, but, but people who are not sincere, these people are not sincere, I don't believe. And when you are insincerely wrong, you know it. And I think there comes a point where any logical person starts to realize in a discussion between ideas, when they're not on the right side, And so there's another complex of humanity, something psychological. And this is the I am alone psychology. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Yes, they have. But we think we're the only ones who's ever experienced something or seen something. You think, oh, no, what if people don't see this thing that's happening in the world? I I alone. In all of, all of the, the millions and billions of people on this planet, I alone see this thing that's happening. No, you don't. There's lots of people that seen the trouble you've seen. And so even if you're in the majority, you can start to think, oh no, these two people, they're going to convince the world. I am the only one. No, you've got the majority. No, I am the only one who knows that there's giants in the land. No, everybody sees them. Let's kill them before they let everybody know that there's giants in the land. No, there's 10 of you that have been talking about the giants in the land. We've got huge grapes. We're the only ones that have caught on to the world around us and we get scared about the world around us. And so we see the irrationality of fear, but we also see the error of reaction. The error of of reaction is this. Why did they think this was going to solve the problem? It's very short-sighted. Naturally, you think they're dead. Dead men don't tell tales. Right? We've got to shut them up because they're going to convince the world. Now, whether that was going to happen or not, it's very short-sighted. Those who do not have the truth will only resort to a discussion for so long. And that is up until the discussion no longer favors them. They don't have the truth. And so as soon as it starts to swing the other way, they will resort to another type of a a goal to shut you up. I can't convince people that you're wrong. I'm going to have to do it a different way. And that always takes this turn, always takes this turn. Why does it always take this turn? Because truth always wins. Always. 
Truth never is compared to a lie and come out the loser. It's never happened. It might take it some time. And maybe by the time it does, there's a new lie. That's true. The lies that you hear about anything have been repeated and regurgitated. Anything you hear about the criticism of the Bible or Jesus' deity, those were, those were theories and things that were around 100, 200, 300 years after Christ. They got defeated then. And they've just been regurgitated. They've already lost. And so people who hated Christianity stopped resorting to those, and they started using firmer means to silence Christianity. Truth always wins. And that is why these men only resorted to the argument for so long, because that's, it had a shelf life. Show to me a flat earth convention. And I'll show you flights with all the windows closed. I mean, they're, they're international conferences. You have to get in a plane. You have to look out and see a curve. I guarantee you, I, I just know it. Because truth is there. It is what it is. Killing Joshua and Caleb at the most could postpone. It wasn't going to end the discussion. It did postpone it. 40 years. Their attempt postponed things 40 years. I grew up on murder mysteries. Anybody else grow up on murder mysteries? Have you noticed there's not too many murder mysteries anymore? What have they been replaced by? Forensic shows. Forensics have killed murder mysteries because we're too smart. Right? Like, it was a suicide. No, it wasn't. We got ballistics. We know that that shot was fired from 10 feet away. It wasn't a suicide. Right? We got forensics. We know that stuff now. The DNA. End uh, of story. We don't need Columbo. We don't need Matlock. People are like, who's Columbo? We don't need them. They're, they died. Truth wins. It's evidence. It's right there. You're gonna kill, you're gonna kill these guys. Okay, wonderful. The evidence is going to be there of truth, whether these men are alive to say it or not. God's going to win. He's got truth. Kill me. And this is the evidence. This is, what the, this is the irrational uh, nature of what these guys are saying. I want to show you the irrational nature of it. And this is where we're going to get to the, the real point of what we've been leading up to. Beginning in Matthew, uh, uh, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 13. We're going to read through, uh, or excuse me, verse 11. Beginning in verse 11 and going down uh, through... 19. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence, 
and disinherit them, I will make of you a greater and mightier nation than that. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. And they have heard you. You, Lord, are among the people. They've heard that you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire of night. Now, if you kill these people like they were one man, then the nations which have heard of it and heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as, you, as you've spoken, saying the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he who by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on third and fourth generations. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Now, there is something that is discovered in this that dead men do indeed tell tales. Moses stumbles across that. I, I, by the way, I don't think that Moses is smarter than God and saying, I discovered that God said, I didn't think about this. Good, good point, Moses. Good on you. I, I, I don't think that's what's going on here, but I, I think this is, Moses is in an inconvenient spot. He's about to be overthrown. It would be really tempting for him to say, I got to keep on going. I just have to remove a certain group of people. This is why it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a, an important thing, that something I've, I've not seen before, that they were getting ready to get rid of Moses. I'd never seen that. That makes this all the more understandable, this series of questions between God and, and Moses. God's like, listen, they're getting ready to overthrow you. I can just get rid of them. That's got to be a tempting offer. And Moses says, no. Because dead men tell tales. Because those dead men in Egypt have been telling this tale to these people that are about to go in. They've heard about it when they go in. The, the, 40 years from now, they're going to say, oh, no, we heard what was going on. We were scared. Those dead men at the bottom of the Red Sea have been telling this tale for 40 years. And Moses says, Moses comes to the realization that if you kill these people, it's going to be a new story that gets told. When you bring us this time, they're not going to be afraid. They're not going to be afraid of God. Dead men tell tales. So they could kill Joshua and Caleb, but it's not going to change the story. No, we're glad that they didn't. People who suffer for the cause of Christianity, we, we look at that as the negative, and it is because it's a loss of life. It's tragic. But, but we look at that as a net loss. It is not a net loss. Because physical life 
in the final analysis is not the greatest factor in the equation. Moses understood what the greatest factor in the equation was, which was the reputation of God among people. That's, that's what he understood. That's what Joshua and Caleb understood. That's what these people didn't understand. We've talked about this effect years later under, uh, under Rome. The growth of Christianity while Rome is trying to kill Christians brutally. It's an interesting thing that happens. I made reference maybe a little bit to it um, recently, but once paganism fell, Constantine allows all these Christians to come out of woodwork. There's like a shift, a complete shift. Now we get the big church buildings and things, right? We talked about that. And, and there's, a, there's a, a period of about 100 years or so where Christianity became popular. More people certainly flooded into it. There's an emperor by the name of Theodosius who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. First one to do that. Constantine never did that. He just kind of allowed everybody to do what they wanted to. He began persecuting Christian or non-Christians. Theodosius, all the things that happened to the Christians, he starts doing to the pagans. It's, a, it's an upside down world. The rules that had been against Christians were put in, in place against polytheists. Meetings were forbidden. Their books were burned. Fines and property were confiscated. All the statues were torn down. Cancel culture. And guess who got in on it? Christians. Christians got in on it. They loved it because it wasn't them now. Finally, it's their turn. How do you like it now? This is what we went through for 300 years. Now you're going to taste it. There was a main difference. The death penalty didn't happen too often. That was interesting. And this is what's noted by historians, that there was a threat of capital punishment. There was a law in place that if you did this, you could be, if you engaged in a sacrifice to a pagan god, you could be put to death. But they noticed that it was never put into place. And the observation was they just simply didn't believe it enough. Whereas 100 years, 200, 300 years earlier, Christians believed it enough to die for it, to stand there in flames, to stand there and hold on to their confession while a lion started walking towards them with no good intentions. Uh, the nearest threat of anything, and people said, you know what, we don't really have to sacrifice to Zeus. Zeus has no power. And they recognized it. And that was the difference. Notwithstanding the, the hypocrisy of, of Christianity at, at that point in time, 
The fact is there is a difference. Paganism died with Emperor Theodosius, not because of his restrictions, but because the truth wasn't on its side. See, if, 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 if it had been truth, then it would have survived. Just like Christianity survived 10 emperors like Theodosius. I want to wrap up. We like sermons of hope, don't we? Hope. That is a good word. Joshua and Caleb presented a message of hope. Why didn't it go over better? A message of hope. Andrew, we need sermons about hope. I don't want to die. I'm not going to preach a message of hope. I don't want you to kill me with stones. <laughs> they presented a message of hope. And he got killed or got threatened to be killed, right? What is it about hope that, that made, this is the illogical nature of it. What is it about hope? We go all the way back and talk about these, these other men and how they convinced the world. And what's the difference between this and this and why their reaction, the illogical nature of it all? What is it about hope and fear? Hope and fear are not opposites, not perfectly opposites. They're kind of opposite reactions, maybe. But what are fear and hope? They're connected. There's something that unites them. It's what makes fearful people hate a message of hope. They're connected at one point, and that is that they're both about the unknown. Hope is hope because we don't quite know. Right now we present a message of hope, but that means I'm not 100% certain. I walk out here today and I have a hope of what I believe in. But until I see Christ, it's just hope. It's faith, faith based on hope. But I haven't seen anything outside of what he's allowed me to see. I see nature. I see things that God has done in my own life. And these are all pieces of evidence, but they're not proof. There's a difference between evidence and proof. I, I can take all of these things and I can assemble them and say, this is my best option. I have a hope that this is likely to be the outcome, but I don't know because I've never, I've never been there. And, and so all of these guys come back and there's two and there's 10 and they're just saying, we have these pieces of evidence and we have all this and we, we come up with a message of hope. No, we come up with a message of fear. Why? Because we have this evidence. We have this evidence and we're trying to figure out what is best. It is a message of hope. There is a hope of victory. We're going to be leading up to this, going into to Easter, filling out this, this idea a little bit more. There is a message of the hope of victory. But we do need to understand it might be the message we want. like the 10 spies, like people under the first three centuries of Christianity, that hope comes with vulnerability. 
personally be vulnerable. We talk about the victories of, of, of going into Canaan and the great conquest of Joshua. You know, you know God's people died in those battles. They, they, they weren't 100% to, 100% to 0%. Some people went into those battles and never settled a land that they fought for. Some people died. Those aren't nice stories. The Bible is presented as a, a bunch of nice children's Bible stories. They aren't. They're brutal stories. But as we leave here, the one message, the first message that we're going to take about the tales that dead men tell, the first challenge for us is to understand that a triumphant church which is our goal. A, a, a church that is committed to, to this message of hope has to exchange its security for victory. And we have to step into uncertainty. And that's why it's un, unpopular. 